oh, this is actually racist as hell. This is actually really, really like messed up, or this is a microaggression, but it's kind of, I just didn't realize because I was in the thick of it. But when I took a step back, I realized I had been encountering this from the very beginning when I was told I wouldn't be qualified to be a director. Yet I began reporting to a woman that had a bachelor's degree and got, who got promoted to assistant dean. It had been happening to me all along. From somewhere around the world, welcome to the Black Women Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Wanda Duncan, and I'm so glad you're joining me as we explore the paths of Black women who've made travel a large part of their lives. Welcome to the show. So thank you so much for joining us. Could you please tell us your name, the name of your business, where you're currently located, and where you're from? Hey, y'all. My name is Natalie Gillard, and I am the super, super proud owner of Factuality, which is a crash course on structural inequality based on U.S. statistics. I currently reside in Baltimore, and I am actually from Massachusetts. I have lived in Cambridge, Waltham, Newton, and moved down to Baltimore from Boston about seven years ago. Yes. So you have an education background. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So I began my career in Boston working as a resident director. There was a vacancy for a director of student leadership and diversity programs. I was wrapping up a master's degree that focused on race and ethnic studies, but all grounded in education. And I remember applying for that position, but being told that I was not qualified, but then having to report to a white woman who I was more credentialed than, who, who got promoted to assistant dean. And here I am being the coordinator. So I've had this background in education and unfortunately was stuck in that role for a couple of years because my title didn't, didn't allow for much much traction because it was so entry level. So that's my start with education. Was that also the start of you brainstorming factuality? No, but it was it was just coming into these realizations about inequality and especially workplace inequality and feeling like I always had to wear my identity on the outside because people are actually not colorblind in that regard. You could exactly see what's going on when you take a look at me, I'm a black person. And so I just started encountering things that didn't feel good, but didn't really know how to describe it because it was the first time that it, that it had ever been so overt. But I ended up relocating to Baltimore. I had this strong interest in moving to DC actually, and took a job in Baltimore because it was close enough. And it was at that job that I moved, that I moved down for at Notre Dame of Maryland University, they had a opening for a director for activities and orientation, but I saw that they didn't have anyone charged with developing diversity initiatives. So I figured I would do my job really well, show my interest in those areas and be able to kind of turn that into a position as well, which I did. And it was an exchange with a coworker, this woman that was so good for sliding people who walked into my office, slighted me by telling me that my previous trainings weren't good. And I remember getting so angry. I called her a couple of words under my breath and poof, the idea about creating a game 
came to me first, it was, I'm going to find the best game. I'm going to show her, I'm going to make the best training or find the best training. And when I couldn't find anything, I was like, boom, I'm going to make a training. And it just blew up into a full-time job a couple of years later. I love that. Okay. So boom, (laughs) here we go. (laughs) I'm upset. They underestimated me, but not today. So you came out swinging. Absolutely. And I think it was like, after years of being told or being shown that I wasn't good enough. And you you think of those lessons that you grow up with, with black parents, like you got to work twice as hard or like the ways you have to apply yourself just to be, just to even have, make it to your seat. If you, if one's even available to you. And so coming in equipped with that type of work ethic, because that's survival and in that moment, I was like, okay, I am tired of doing running other people's work. I'm so tired of listening to this woman's mouth about all the things. She's, she was just awful. And so my friends consider it, and I, it a, sorry, my friends consider it a divine idea. And really it just like, it just took over when I first thought of it. And yeah, now I'm approaching or I'll be hitting my 10,000th participant sometime this summer. So when you were not able to go for the job that you wanted, you said that was your first experience with overt. So did, were you able to have the language? Like we've developed language like through collective consciousness, right? So we've come to term it as microaggressions, the things that happen in a black person's everyday life that happen simply because they are black. So do you, looking back at your history, like, do you, um, does that vibe with you at all? You know, uh, I did, having experienced microaggressions. You know, I, I didn't have the language to describe it back then. I just knew it didn't feel good, and I would run this. I created this presentation about being a woman of color, especially a black woman in the workplace, and what that's like, the politics around here, and how you present yourself, and what natural bodies look like, and professional attire and not wanting to attract people and things like that, name discrimination. I'd run this presentation all the time. And then all of a sudden I started having these awful, awful feelings when I realized that I was contributing to that data, that I was also a statistic. I had been encountering those types of things. How do I wear my hair to an interview and being mistaken for the one or two other black people that are on campus? Like I realized, oh my gosh, like this presentation is about me. And I was just, I was just doing this work, but not realizing that I was also contributing to it. Like my friend Tyranny always says, she does this type of work as well. We are both the subject and the object of the work. And that's really, really complex and challenging. And so didn't have the language, but it was at my last job where I encountered more racism and and bullying in two years than I had encountered in the previous almost 10 years of my career. And that's when I finally had the language. Like I was an assistant vice president. I had the academic background. I also had the work experience. And I was also engaged in a lot of social justice oriented activities outside of my work. So my personal and professional life are one and the same. And then I had the language. And then I started realizing with the help of a therapist, what had been happening to me all along and could finally actually describe it. And once I was able to describe it, and when I was at that point in my career, I realized that I had to figure a way out. I had to figure out how I can do something on my own that allows me to revisit my initial goals with this type of work because I was traumatized 
and was too terrified to apply and take a position elsewhere because I could not feel that again once I knew how to how to describe what I did not want to feel anymore. So that is very interesting that you describe your experience like that. It seemed like you were completely divorced emotionally from the things you were experiencing when you were creating the presentation because only did you internalize it as you were teaching it that you were talking about yourself. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's so interesting. It's just, I just, you know, I think, I know that racism and discrimination do not have to be big overt things, but I think it was just more so, I was so used to encountering microaggressions. It just kind of felt like a part of life until I took a moment back and took a mo- took a had a moment to take a step back and realize, wait a minute, this is exactly what this is. But I think it's so normalized. There are things that are so normal for us. There are things that have become normal for me by living in Baltimore City. There are things that are normal for me just because I'm black and realizing like when you take a step back and, and take a better look or have an aerial view, it's like, oh, this is actually racist as hell. This is actually really, really like messed up, or this is a microaggression, but it's kind of, I just didn't realize because I was in the thick of it. But when I took a step back, I realized I had been encountering this from the very beginning when I was told I wouldn't be qualified to be a director. Yet I began reporting to a woman that had a bachelor's degree and got, who got promoted to assistant dean. It had been happening to me all along. That's very important, uh, the space to be able to reflect. And I think that as black women, we don't often have that space because we have rent to pay and we have our own mouths to feed. And sometimes children are involved in that process as well. So having the space to actually reflect and internalize and say, regardless of what you call it, like this is racism and like, this is wrong. And like, this needs to change. Um, But you didn't, you didn't create that space by traveling necessarily. Did you like how, you were you created that space as you were doing the work and and you talked about therapy so it was only through you doing the work and doing your internal work that you were able to kind of have your full circle full circle moment it seems like uh, yes but and there's a little bit more to it too cuz travel definitely played a role in this and so it was like all these things i just i came into a variety of realization so I've been with the same mentor since 2020, sorry, 2008. So that's like 11 years now I've had the same mentor. And I remember he was charged with facilitating these high level diversity initiatives. I think he could have been the chief diversity officer in, a, in, in addition to being a vice president at the institution. And he was this well is this well respected man who is just a really great speaker, great facilitator, and he would come to campus do his work. But then it'd be so hard to get on his calendar because he'd always be on the go. He'd be doing a keynote at this place in the country or going to a meeting at this place in the country. He was always on the go, so he was charged with developing these high level diversity initiatives, and then he was also really engage and work outside of the institution. And I just remember meeting this guy and he took me under and he was like, giving me just, just, it was, he was just giving me access to everything I needed to always be able to move up in my career. And I remember saying shortly after I met him, I want to be just like him. I want to go around the country and I want to do in air quotes, diversity work is what I called it in my 
uh, in my brain in the or my limited language back in 2008. That's what I want to do. And I never lost sight of that. Here we are, fast forward all of these years, and I'm the creator of that job. I never expected that I could create an opportunity that I wanted so bad. So I came up with the idea for Factuality in 2015, launched it as a business in 2016. And I remember that first time somebody hired me out of state and I hopped in my car and I drove into Pennsylvania and I spent the day training their staff through my individual, my original work. And then I remember the first time that somebody paid me to get on a plane and I packed my bags and packed my supplies and I went to North Carolina and I ran the game and I came back and I had to go straight from the airport back to that racist job. And I felt so deflated. And I had said to myself, you need to make this a full-time thing because the type of validation, my career is very important to me and educating people around discrimination and the history, the origins of it is one of the most important things to me. And I knew at that point, I need to figure out how I can make this full-time. I wanna be able to travel and engage people in, in what I deem the most important subject matter out there. I love that you had access to that mentor that could boost you because I feel like mentorship is something that is largely lacking. And that is why, even though we are like black women are some of the, um, I forget what you call it, but it's like the highest number of entrepreneurs uh, in specifically in America that I'm not sure how, I guess we have always, and we're, We've always been entrepreneurs, actually, <laughs> like uh-huh. whether whether it's been a little, you know, candy shop out of our front rooms or whatever it is, a press and hair, like whatever it has been. Black women have always been entrepreneurs, but being able to take it to the next level, to take it out of our neighborhoods um, is still something that we have struggled with, because even when, you know, places like Black Wall Street, where we were able to have businesses that were doing very well, um, they've always been uh, taken away from us. Absolutely. And so I I think personally that that's part of some of our traumas are seeing, seeing our efforts snuffed out and trying to dream again and hope again and taking action to see that we can manifest something. Because even though there are structurally so many things against us, we thrive. We have always thrived. Absolutely. Um, so let's talk about factuality. So you said you had the idea in 2015. You made it a big a business in 2016. You have literally been all over America in mm-hmm. the last three years. Um, it's a diversity training board game uh, that addresses structural inequality in America. You have taught at universities and colleges. You've also taught in corporate America um, to executive leadership teams. I saw you work with the American Heart Association, for example. There's also another company that I wasn't familiar with, but um, saw that it was a executive leadership team. You've also talked to the athletic department within those colleges and universities. So um, you are just over 8,000 people who have played this game. And in the last six months, 4,000, like over 4,500 of those. So what, what was that journey like? You, you started getting hired uh, in 2016 to teach. Your first one was Pennsylvania. I think you said your second was, was South Carolina. Uh, the first time I got hired to, in, and it required a flight was in North Carolina. Okay. Um, 
but it it took it took the two years for you to get half of it and you've you've had half of it already in just six months yes (laughs) so Mm -hmm. okay so walk me through what was it like how did you get that first client how did they what did it what how did that happen I remember pulling together my materials something brief that could fit on a postcard to advertise what this work was and I sent it out to a bunch of people that I knew through email and then I also sent it out or posted it to a variety of Facebook groups that pertains to education and I remember feeling so defeated because after sending it out to a bunch of people that I knew who would actually hire people for these trainings the only person that got back to me was my mentor that's it and he told me you should probably get a an actual email account that has your business name for the for the handle for the address because it'll make it look more professional and he offered some other quick like great advice but people that I had known in the field for years upon years not one person that I knew responded to me or even acknowledged what I was working on and I quickly learned that that was something that I was going to have to become accustomed to I remember being laughed at I remember people just glazing over when I would tried to talk to them about what it was that I was doing. Interestingly, I had far more strangers being supportive about this body of work than people that I had known in the field for a really long time. Honey. Why? <laughs> you could, you could say that a hundred times. Like, yes. Can you tell me why did you, honey, why did that, that honey to me just told me that that totally resonated with you. And that is a problem. That is what happens I I made a post in the Black Women Digital Nomad Entrepreneurs group the other day, and it was saying to like stop. It, I didn't make the post actually. It was another entrepreneur uh, that's like a semi friend of mine. Like <laughs> we know each other, but we're not that close. Whatever. So uh, the the quote that she put up was like stop expecting your friends to support you. Like that's not their job. Like they're probably not even your target customer. But in my mind, I'm like, okay, but you could like, you could share, like you could tell somebody about the things that you do because you know I'm awesome. But like they don't, they don't, they do not care. They, and like for whatever reason, I'm not that way. If you look at my Facebook feed, I try to share, like I want somebody to look at my Facebook feed and be like, how is she even involved in this? Like why, why is she posting this? Because I know how hard it is and I know how algorithms work. So even if I'm all the way across the world, I'm going to say I'm going to your event because I want it to gain traction. And a lot of times that's what it's about. That's why you share things so that you could get it in front of people. But I was like, you know what, girl, you're right. Like my fr- and, and it makes you feel bitter towards your friends. So it's just like it's a negative cycle, a negative yeah. thought cycle. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, I mean, we can, we could have a follow-up conversation about Please, this. just about that. Because it's see? hard out here. And you like, I mean, y'all see me sweating. But like. Yeah. It's like, you know. The sweat, just right? jealous. Yeah. <laughs> well, so that's the thing, too. I, I added something to my story yesterday about, essentially, it was around projecting. And people who are feeling insecure about where they haven't or where they haven't been or an inability to to reach their goals for whatever reason they see you doing something and it triggers them so them being triggered has everything to do with them not with you and 
I had to just get, I honestly, I don't know how I did it, but I identified a way to allow that to fuel me somehow where I would see people not really trying to mess up my work and I would just turn it into, all right, you'll see. Okay. You know, I just let it fuel me. Like it didn't throw me off course. It was just like, this is what this reality is going to be like. And the more you work, it seems though this, this seems to be more overt. So keep pushing. And I just, you know, I kind of laugh and I, the more I go to therapy, the more I work on myself, it's more apparent how limited people are and, a lot of people are just so unhappy and we're the ones that look crazy for deciding to quit their full-time jobs and pursue what they love because that's what life is about. Surrounding yourself, immersing yourself in these things that you love, engaging with people, places, beliefs, and things that fuel you versus drain you. It's, it's, it's such an intentional purpose and practice that a lot of people can't relate to, don't even know where to begin, don't even know how to hold themselves accountable and keep festering in this mess. So if you want to project I can totally understand because that really felt awful to me too. So I'm glad that I found my way. And to get back to your question, here's how I did it. (laughs) So I remember coming home from work. I, I was trying to start this support group for women of color just for them to have access to a black therapist and focus on their mental health. Yes. And I remember getting in trouble. I was accused of not having not having an inclusive group. I was asked if I could say all are welcome and I said, well that will allow men to come, but this is a group for women. So they so I realized that what they were getting at was that they didn't like me hosting a group for women of color. So I started asking questions to get on their nerves like, well, would you let cheerleaders <laughs> join the football team? We're opening up fraternities. Are we going to let women join the fraternities? Really, like, what are we getting at here? What's the issue? And then my boss is like, are we making this a race thing? I'm not making it a race thing. She was. And so in the end, they couldn't tell me not to have the group. But I remember going to an equivalent off campus for for women in the city. It was called Not Without Black Women. And when I left that space, I felt this weight lifted off me. And I realized I had been carrying that weight for so long. And I came home to these postcards. I bought all these postcards. I had, like, thousands of postcards that had factuality, and a quick little blurb about what it was. And I said, what will happen if you start mailing these out? And so I went to the post office and I grabbed a bunch of postcard stamps. And every single day I would pick a state. And it wasn't until I completed pulling the directories for every single school in that state. I wrote to every single college, university, and most middle schools in the state of Maryland. I wrote to every college and university in the state of California, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Virginia, DC, I feel like I could be missing something. And three people got back to me. (laughs) That was it. After I spent months pulling all of the information from directories and then started sending everything out. And what that turned into was three people getting back to me, which created a little bit of traction. And I decided at that point, I'm not going to take any vacation time. I love vacation time. I love going, I love traveling. I'm going to hold off on traveling and I'm going to use my vacation time solely for taking time off to facilitate this off campus. And then I started building up some more people that way. And I think that I, my goal was to pay down my credit card bill, save up for six months worth of expenses so I could take that plunge. And what really allowed me to choose my date was that I was being bullied by someone in human resources who pulled my vacation submissions and cross-checked it against my blog post after acting like they didn't know what I was working on. 
and falsely accused me of, mis of misusing company time. And it was that weekend I chose my last day. Girl. <laughs> so I read this uh, on your Facebook and it says that um, you have been able to start living your life exclusively on your uh, own terms and it required next level discipline, accountability of self, and plunging into full-time entrepreneurship. You said the journey was painfully disruptive mm -hmm. and that you feel like you are landing gracefully. Now, this is your 36th birthday post that you made. And so, like, just talking about some of those hardships, that's what I wanted to ask you about. And, like, <laughs> painfully disruptive sounds like it. Like, these people are poking you. They are poking the bear and they got themselves a fight. Yes, yes. And so it was all of a sudden I just realized that I was operating largely in autopilot. I was just going through the motions, motions that never felt authentic or rarely felt authentic, didn't feel authentic with enough frequency. And so it was like, you need to go back to therapy. I went to my first therapy appointment when I was 19 and kind of went off and on when I was living in Boston. And then when I moved. I, I lost everything. I had a friendship end. I was trying to do the entrepreneurial thing with a good friend who wasn't honest about the finances of the company. And I ended up losing my savings. I ended up losing my free apartment on campus. I was unemployed and major, major depressions crept in. I remember spending my last dollar at my cousin's bachelorette party and I was her maid of honor. And I was like, I wanted this to be so much more grand than what it was. And I was dead broke. I was like, I hope I can make it back from New York into Baltimore. I was so broke. And so I lost everything. And the biggest thing I lost, however, with, forget the money, forget all those things was I really felt my mental health slipping. So I was very intentional about getting back into therapy again. And I've consistently been with my current therapist for a few years now and just started airing out all the things that were getting to me and holding myself accountable. I, I ended up doing this TEDx talk, which unfortunately never uploaded, but it was called holistic minimalism, where I had to do an inventory on so many parts of my life. Like just, I'm looking at life, I'm looking at minimalism holistically. It's not just having fewer plates or fewer clothing. It's like fewer friends, fewer beliefs, fewer items. Like I was looking at it holistically and realized that although there were people inflicting different types of pain that I was, I needed to hold myself more accountable because I was allowing or holding space for them to occupy, which granted them access to the pain that they had been inflicting. So I realized that I was the cause and the cure of all of the grief I had been encountering. And once I started holding myself accountable, everything in my life had to change because I realized that I was the common denominator in many of the things I complained about. I never focused on myself. And so that it, that's hard when you when you look at yourself or you look at a situation and the things that frustrate you the most, you see yourself as the common denominator. That is not easy to swallow. But once you see it, you need to do right by it. I think too many people run when they come into those realizations. But I, I ran right into it instead of instead of running away from it. And there's so many things that contribute to being the best things or what really changed my life. But the main one was holding myself accountable for my own shit. That's really what it was. Well, like, honestly, I feel like some people don't even get to the point where they realize they are the common denominator, that yes. they can make a different choice, 
they feel like life is happening to them and that there aren't any alternatives. But when you are in an impoverished, whether that's uh, financially, mentally, spiritually, when you're when you're in a state of lack, it is very hard to think your way out of that, to positive think your way out of that. Yes, but mm-hmm. there has to be you, you like they're just I mean, I was in those places, too, where every day just felt like there was a dark cloud, like I had depression, like it just felt like I would get like a few hours of a break and I would just hold on to it. Cause I, and I would tell myself this is going to be short lived, but you have the capacity to feel this good. Don't lose sight. And then I see the dark cloud creeping back in. And that happened for like several years that I, I went through this process. It's not like I see people say, oh, I did my self-care for a month. Huh? <laughs> I've been doing this for <laughs> Not a month. Like I, this is several years. It's a practice. It, it is a lifestyle. And I've been doing it for several years. I've invested a lot of money by going to, to, see, to see therapists for years because it's not something that you do overnight. You have to spend many days and nights, not only in therapy, but then taking the tools that they give you and putting it into practice if you want to see a change. And then you have to commit to these new to these new behaviors and habits. Like You have to be very grounded in them. So that's why I say it was, I think it was um, blissfully disruptive because it truly, it truly was. It was the hardest thing I encountered, but it was the greatest things that ever happened to me, and and I and I would I would do it all again to end up right here. Usually, disruption is used positively, uh, especially like in the startup space. Like, oh, we're disrupting this, whatever field or whatever. Um, so it, that was an interesting word choice I found. That's what like it really caught my eye. Um, thank you so much for sharing all of that because you don't have to, that is something that I'm very interested in. People always have these hero arc stories. It was like, I was Poe, but now I'm rich. Ha, you know, get like me, this seven step program. Um, that's how they sell it. And for whatever reason, like the, the way people's brains work, how we're wired, people are attracted to that. But there's something much deeper happening, I believe. Um, If somebody has truly gone through transformation and it hasn't been just a bunch of privilege that landed them where they are in a place where they can tell other people how to get where they are. So I, from my heart, really appreciate you sharing part of that. And I'm sure, (laughs) I am sure there's so much more to it. Um, (laughs) There's so much more to it because, yes. (laughs) <laughs> it, it, it's, it's devastating, but I, I also salute you for going through that process for saying this is not it and this is really painful, but I'm going to choose another way and I need a little bit of help to get there yes. and finding, finding help that works. I've been to therapists before, but like I never really, none of it ever stuck. Like I was like, yeah, I'm coming and telling you what to do. Let me move on with my let me move on with my life because you're not, <laughs> you're not helping. Um, I'm so, glad you said that. Yes. I'm glad you said that. So for anyone that is listening, sometimes like I, I am a major, major proponent for therapists. I love when I'm doing a talk and people will share their, their respective place of employment or what they do. And there are black therapists in the room and I just want to get up and hug them all because black therapists are so important to me. And it's when I would when I was going through racism, encountering a lot of racism at work, it was 
I, I, I was looking forward to going to therapy because I'd be sitting across from another face that looked just like mine who could resonate that much more because we had that commonality around our blackness and she had encountered it as well. So sometimes you have a therapist that's a little janky. <laughs> so you have to just that's be able true. it's terrible when you they when say. you are in, when you are in great need for a therapist and you meet one that's janky, that sucks. But keep pushing because there are some good ones out there, but sometimes you might have to shop around a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Because like what they say, all skin folk and kin folk, Hello. some people are, are buried underneath and they haven't done the work themselves. Yes. Or, yes. or their experience is just different, which is totally fine because, you know, diaspora, whatever. <laughs> But yes, it, it's like any relationship. You, uh, it takes a little bit of time to find the the person with the right chem- chemistry. That doesn't mean you should give up. If, exactly. if if you're drawn to that specific modality of healing, exactly. Mm-hmm. So with that said, I mean, you had Miss Sonia Williams in your corner, though. Miss Sonia Williams was backing you up. Natalie, talk about her. I saw you yes. made a post about her. Yeah, a one day one. So her her name, I call her Sanji, and her real name is Sanja, but Sorry. with that J, <laughs> no, okay, but with that J, she gets a, a whole lot of different things, but that's <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> she's, uh, she's one of my best friends, and we actually met in college. I didn't like her at first, but <laughs> we ended up becoming RAs and became really good friends, and we've been friends for a really long time now. And she's an entrepreneur. She was on Project Runway twice and has been on her own. Like she was like, I want to create my own line. I want to be a fashion designer and this is what I'm going to do. And it was tunnel vision. And that's, that's exactly what she does now. And now is designing and have, having celebrities wear her pieces. So she already came into this or she she inspired me and kept me encouraged as I was pursuing entrepreneurship because that's just all that she ever wanted. Like she always wanted to do her own thing for as, pretty much as long as I've known her. And so she'd be there. I remember we were on a trip to Amsterdam. That was 2015. And we hopped around to a couple of different countries and she let me talk her to death about what am I going to name this? Because that was November of 2015. This launched in 2016. And I still don't know what I was calling it. And I had all these different names and I'm, I'm running all these names by her. And she's just without any frustration. She just gave me all of the space I needed to occupy to vet what this body of work would become. She's been to my sessions. She'll add me. She'll share my work, add me to her stories. Like I, I it's very evident that she's proud of me, but I think beyond my professional life, she was the main friend that was always in my corner about this body of work. It was always as important to me or important to, I'm going to mess this up, but we always found it equally important, this body of work. And, and yeah, yeah, she was from the very beginning when this idea came to me, she was right there and she's been there. That's so so fire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. And you you talked about your dad being very proud of you as well yes yes you know I hope my parents I want my parents to listen to this but I don't want them to be mad at me but I feel like I've been having conversations lately about generational differences especially in black families and and the ties that certain things that are part of discussion and versus the many many things that are omitted from discussion 
their, their origins with survival during slavery. So I've been having a lot of conversations about generational differences and the openness that I'm encountering with black women and some of my black male friends around our challenges, like just our willingness to, to have these very necessary conversations versus older generations who just totally shut down, but trying to understand like the trauma around slavery that contributed anyway. So I, having my parents be super proud of me or, you know, talking to me about my work or, or taking it below the surface is not something that I'm really accustomed to. But I remember after encountering a lot of racism at that last place of employment and calling my parents every day, because I talk to my parents, we do a quick check-in pretty much every single day. And I'm like, uh-huh. I'm going this, I'm going through that. It's so hard. And finally, one day my parents say to me, Natalie, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And it was the most awful wake up call because to me was a, because they were right in one regard that, yeah, this is not just me tackling racism at this level. This is like at this particular institution at this level, this is institutional, like nationwide. That this is like a national issue. So the institution is the nation and I'm trying to chip away at these issues around racism. So my parents are like, Natalie, that's just how it is. And so, yes, but then also thinking of you go to you go to school, you get that good nine to five, you get your whatever at the end when you turn sixty five. So I think it was it was twofold where that's just how it is, but you got to keep at it because that's just how it is. And I was, and for me, the second part of that's just how it is was like, uh, uh-uh, I'm not, this is not how it's going to be for me. There has to be a different way. And so after complaining, complaining, complaining about all the racism I had been encounter, encountering, I told my parents, I want to quit my job. They came to a session. They finally said, okay, you can quit your job. Not that I needed them to say yes, but it felt good for them to be like, okay, you can do it. And so October of 2018 is when I left my job, but that was the second time. I, I definitely tried to leave in August before all the trainings that they needed me to do. It's like, I'm out of here. You're not going to get anything else out of me. You guys have worked. Me. But I ended up leaving in October after I agreed to stay part-time. I went back to work and I was like, man, you made a big mistake. So I put in my notice again. Yes. Well, I love that. I love that you said that they gave you their approval, but you didn't really need it. Yes. I love well. that. Be- especially since uh, you talk to them every day, it seems like you're very close with them. And some people still live, live to please other people. Sometimes those people are your parents. So I yes. love that. I love that. Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I can't remember his name. I know he's a extraordinarily successful entrepreneur, perhaps business owner. I believe he's a white male. And I saw this video, my cousin sent it to me last night, this video of, I would rather you have six years of feuding with your parents because you, you chose to live for yourself instead of 60 years of feuding with them because you chose to live for them. And then finally, when you have your wake up call, you're about 60, they're about 80. And, and then there's all this drama at the end of life. And so I had to do, had to learn that it was really important to do what made me feel good. And and there was definitely a point in my life where I was living for my mother and I was trying to do things that would meet her approval. And it just, I felt like I was like losing my mind because I wasn't putting myself first. And so now I'm always first and everything else 
we'll we'll have to follow that. But I need to put my needs or my wants, like what I what I feel is necessary for me to live the most authentically I could possibly live. I always have to come first, and and that means that I mean I'm 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 grown, and you know I'm I'm 36. Yeah. Like I need to put myself forward, and and my parents respect that, but it's I'm not sure if they have the language for it. But I'm very good at setting boundaries. That's integral to success. You have to be good at setting boundaries and sticking to them. Yes, your therapy better work. Yes. Girl, got auto tools. Check this kid out. <laughs> that is so wonderful. You are saying all of the things that are so, so good. <laughs> it so feels it seems, Yes, I'm glad. So it seems like... Um, the way you have built yourself up, the things that you have practiced in your life have helped you not only to create this great, this game, this 90 minute game factuality, but to connect and excel. Because I can't imagine that it doesn't take a toll sometimes. Like oh. looking over uh, your Facebook feed, like I saw you post about the Lorraine Hotel where MLK was assassinated. I saw you post about um, in 1963, there were 30, three zero, 30 black girls between the ages of 20, I mean, sorry, between the ages of 12 and 15 were locked up for two months for trying to buy movie tickets. And so yeah. I... I can't imagine. It's you're an activist essentially. Yes. And in, in education working from that angle. Has it been triggering to you confronting the racist past of America, the ramifications? Um and also you're teaching mostly to white people. So what has that been like? Has it been triggering and what has it been like teaching to the whites? Sure. So I would say it's largely not triggering, but it's because the way I deliver the work, it's airtight and doesn't really allow much room for people to poke holes. So I obsessively research and watch documentaries, explore museums. Like I am always making sure I have the strongest data incorporated into my work. And also the delivery. So the order in the order to delivering this, these statistics to people, there's a certain order to it so that people can't poke holes in it because it does, it could be very harmful to me if there are people constantly challenging or there are people once in a while I do get challenged by people. So I'll give you an example of a shift I had to make and then I will, and I'll answer what it's like because I, I do largely use this tool in, in white spaces. And so I read a statistic about the gender pay gap and how despite your academic achievements, men's median earnings outpace their counterparts. And there's a specific directive where the males have to receive money from the other particip- other players because of the, 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 the gender pay gap. But then I will couple that with what I call the racial pay gap. And I talk about, despite your, your, your educational pursuits and achievements, minority women do not earn as much as white women. 
And so I had to pair those together because what ended up happening was that I would have a lot of white women in my trainings gravitate towards, see, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed, I'm oppressed. And you most certainly are oppressed because I did say the gender pay gap. But what that fails to acknowledge is the importance of approaching this through an intersectional lens. So you have to see that I am black because you, you, you can't avoid this. And you have to understand the relationship that class has to race. And so nationally looking at this, it means that people who look like me are falling behind as it pertains to pay equity. And so I had to pair those. And I learned quickly I had to pair those because I'd get people pushing back because they were oppressed because of the gender pay gap. And I'm, 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 I'm creating space for that. It's, it's a fact that women do make less than men, but equal payday for, for women was in April. Equal payday for black women specifically, I believe, is in August. And so you have to look at this holistically. You have to look at this through an intersectional lens. And so I had to pair those statistics. And ever since I did that and shifted the order, I don't get people holding on with all that they have to the, gen to the gender pay gap. So it's just a matter of shifting the data or shifting the delivery to diffuse what commonly was coming up for me. And then I, interestingly, it's not what you hear a lot, but I, have, I as you know, I've played this with many people and I know that tensions are extraordinarily high around race, especially between white and black people, just mimicking the history, the origins of these issues. But when I tell you that there are white people out here who are trying with everything in them to reconcile the luxuries they are afforded around supremacy and trying to, to reconcile how they are actively contributing to this, to this system and, and trying to get their cousins and their mamas and their grandmamas on board with the realities of racism and how they are perpetuating that's who I mostly meet in all honesty. I, because a lot of my sessions are, some of them are mandatory. Some of them are people can come. And I did, I did six, three hour sessions earlier this month where it was an opt in. And I worked with definitely over a hundred people over those, over those few days for these three hour sessions where I ran the game, but we took more time to look at redlining maps and have really intimate conversations around prescription medication disparities based on race. Like these people were willing to dive in. So I meet a lot of people who are ready to get this work done, but then there are people who show up, who are savvy with the language, who are, who are, I'm, their colleagues may tell me that they are totally misleading me. So you have those people. And then there are people, and this is what I, I don't see as much. And, and perhaps it could be because people are saving face, but I meet people who I was a principal came to my session earlier this month and said two of her admins were so angry after playing the game. I hated this game. She was lying, and the principal <laughs> continued to talk to them. And mm -hmm. she's like, "Well, what is she? What was she lying about?" And they said, "Oh, she was talking about this redlining thing. That's not true, baby girl. Google, Google will Google Google will tell you exactly Hello. that <laughs> that redlining was actually created by your Congress and your beloved." Uh, President Roosevelt. So just all you have to do is just search, but I have to stop, take a moment to think about what is it like for somebody to encounter this type of lesson? This for some people could be a deep dive. And for me, this isn't, this isn't like a super deep dive. And I think that's just how I've been able to build myself up about, and that's just resilience that coincides with blackness. And so 
for me, I understand how it could be a deep dive, but this is like putting on your gear and you are plunging down deep, deep, deep below the icebergs. And so what is it like when you have, you made it to about 40, 50 years old and somebody black walks in and tells you all these things about your America that you never, that you never even heard of before. I think that if I was limited, if I wasn't open, I think I would probably shut down as well too, because that's really, really common. So Taking how, taking how people commonly react to challenges, but then when you apply a layer of race to it, it's the same complexity, but now you're looking at it through race. So perhaps that person struggles with a lot of areas in their life. So I'm taking all of those things into consideration, but I still have open arms because I'm definitely able to reach people. And I see people come full circle sometimes with their own negative beliefs or racist beliefs or discriminatory beliefs, I watch people come full circle and they do it publicly and it's a beautiful thing. So I have to be willing to receive all people. But I, I, so training white people isn't really a big challenge. I encounter a lot of people who are just ready and willing to have these much needed conversations. So I feel really lucky in that regard. Like, is it something? Because the way church is happening right now for me, <laughs> your powers of empathy are on Mars, like another planet. Like, I don't think that a lot of people can get past being triggered to seeing all these dead bodies, videos of people being shot and so forth, all the hashtag names. Mm-hmm. I don't think people have been able to get past the anger. Yeah, it, that's really common. I will mean, I will meet, I'll meet older black people, definitely senior black people. I'm saying like in their seventies, who might be the custodian that's been at the school for however many years, and I'll say, "Do you want to come into the session? You can come play too." And I, I remember having this man at one of these private schools I had to work, and he said, Mm-mm, "I don't trust them." is what he said. And I think about, I, I, what I do end up encountering in my sessions are a lot of white participants who are openly having conversations about some of the inappropriate things that people say while playing the game. So some things that are kind of racist, definitely some microaggressions or uh, once in a while, somebody will say, oh my gosh, somebody was at my table saying, oh, that's not true. That's not true when there are things that are actually true. So they'll, so I'll have people who are telling on other people that look like them, but it needs to go beyond that. Like you need to challenge them for me because I understand my limitations. I don't challenge people in my sessions because I don't want people to shut down. That's that empathy piece. Like I don't want you to feel triggered, even though I might get triggered is once in a while. I don't want you to feel triggered. So I'm taking all those things in, but I understand people in their inability to let go of the anger. I drive through Baltimore City almost every day. Hello. And everything I see, when I see people that are trying to sell drugs on the street, where I see balloon memorials, which is really not hard to come across in this city, my mind instantly goes back to the first redlining map that I saw for this city in 1937 and all those places shaded in red where black people were forced into and then intensely under-resourced and then you then you're arresting black people at these alarming rates, whether they are guilty or not. And you have all these bogus policies about soliciting and 
it's just all these things to intentionally criminalize black people. And I drive through those, those streets and I see that history. And it just ha- get, allows me to have so much more love and compassion for black people, the black experience, considering that many of those areas that I drive through that remain impoverished, I superimpose a present day map of all the Baltimore neighborhoods against a redlining map. And most, the strong majority of those redlining spaces have the same, what's the term I'm looking for? The same composition mm-hmm. of the neighborhoods mm-hmm. when people were forced into to them into the 1930s. So I have a lot of compassion there and I try to educate people around those things. So you call this neighborhood sketchy and I'm letting you know that it was people that looked like you who created these neighborhoods intentionally because they deemed black people inharmonious or whatever the other terms were being used. And so I just gently tried to share the education while still having empathy for what people don't know because a lot of people are limited. We didn't learn these things in our history books. You have to go and teach yourself these on your own. And if you're not, if you don't know what to look for, I've been called a white splinter. If you don't know what is out there, what has actually occurred, like sometimes it's hard to get started because you just don't know. So I'm happy to break it down and explain it because sometimes that's what people require. I know that if I need to learn how to do a certain tutorial, I might hop on YouTube. Getting it out of a book might not be enough, but I have to have a willingness to explore. But some people are just super, super terrified of the conversation. So perhaps through this tool, they can get what they need to pursue this curiosity a little bit further. Um, I had to say, oh, it's that these people are seeking it out. You said sometimes it's compulsory that they play the game and then uh, sometimes they're just allowed to come into play. It's just offered. So I think that that is a bit key, whether it's compulsory or they uh, like mandatory or it's optional. They may be a little bit more open to learning and it's really awesome that it's a game i know in the startup world like gamify gamify they wanted to gamify things in order to help people to participate like on a meditation app it'll tell you how many days of a streak you're on or like duolingo learning a language it'll tell tell you how many days of a streak you're on and like give you little uh, some of them give you little like little bonuses or like awards or whatever like oh you're doing such a good job so sure. it's it's really interesting that this is your it's, it's, it's a game to teach people mm-hmm. to open a conversation and people generally love games I think I don't really know <laughs> they, they, they definitely do and it's <clears throat> it was it was really deliberate about holding on to the gamified piece of this because I would tell people that I would, I know exactly what it's going to be like. If it's mandatory, I could tell you exactly what the attitudes are going to be like before I walk in the room. I have people that don't want to be there, people that don't want to be themselves. You don't want to be lectured at, and you don't want to be there all day. That coincides every time with a mandatory session. So with the game, you have it's a simulation, so you have to be there, but you don't have to be yourself. And instead of lecturing. There's a lot of storytelling and there's it's experiential because you're doing the simulation and it's 90 minutes. So there's your brevity. So it, it's it combats all the things that people typically hate about about trainings, especially diversity trainings or diversity experiences. Mm-hmm. And so intentionally combating those things and then still pe- keeping people engaged and then telling people because they're laughing, they're having a good time that we're capable like you just demonstrated 
that there is some proficiency here. You can have this conversation, but you can't always control the delivery. So just be open. And then there are some people who resemble the lives or who have lives that are similar to some of the characters that have more challenges. And it's a game, but it is not a game to them. And so I allow them to take up space to talk about how challenging it was for them to engage in a simulation of their own lives, which allows people to realize the, the severity of these issues that are impacting some groups versus others. Yes, I had a um, friend create a black man simulator. So I guess it just like takes people through the daily life of a black man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's just another tool to help with empathy. And uh, I appreciate you just seem like really well prepared and like really well thought out. It seems like <laughs> like do you spend a lot of your time anticipating uh, not not specifically with the game, but like in in your life, anticipating things and like trying to prepare yourself for them? Yes, actually, but in an interesting way. So that's exactly what I've done. But I spent a lot of time learning how to relinquish control. And I remember that I was told I had to introduce the president at not my last job, the job prior, I had to introduce the president before orientation. And I obsessed all night over these two minute remarks. (laughs) Didn't really sleep well. My stomach was in knots. I get up in the morning. I'm walking to the auditorium. I am like super nervous about these two minute remarks to welcome the president. Mm -hmm. And right before she goes to walk in or comes in, we get a call that she twisted her ankle and it's going to be late, which meant I had to immediately shift my opening remarks because she, it, it, what I was going to say did not match or, or did not capture the fact that she wasn't going to be there right after I spoke. And I totally bombed it. And I obsessed over that then for the next day. And I had said to myself, you will never, ever be so married to anything that you can't be more adaptable yeah. and 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 just go with the flow and so at that point i actively began working on relinquishing the control and just being okay with whatever was whatever was happening and being able to go with the flow and i i put so much effort into that so now it's like i i could walk into a room i have to set up for 100 people and and it's all chairs in a row and i'm like all right cool what's the worst that could happen i'll start late so i'm always asking myself what's the worst that could happen and if you answer that question rationally you're realizing that it's actually never ever going to be that bad yes that that i largely operate because really like a room is set up in stadium seating and i have to present in 15 minutes the worst that could possibly happen is that i'm starting late it's not like people aren't gonna stay or people it's like I'm going to start late. It's just that simple. And so I just started approaching things rationally and then relinquishing control. That's really, that's really like, (laughs) it it just seems your whole approach to your entire life has been like, okay, well you here. So what you going to do? Let's, let's do something. (laughs) Let's, let's make it cool. Yeah. And I love that the what's the worst can, that can happen. People, I think, don't understand what real realism is because yeah. your fears are not realistic. Not that not that they're not real fears; they're real fears. But that you will experience them is not necessarily realistic. I think my my philosophy is that you have probably about a 50-50 chance, right? So it's like the the best thing could happen. You could get like a standing ovation and like flowers brought out to you and like 
people throwing money at like the best and then the worst is like somebody slit your throat but like I don't know however many days you've been on this earth probably neither have happened to you it's it's our our lives are pretty humdrum you know <laughs> like we we yeah. have we have some lows but the, uh, usually they're not the worst lows and we have some highs they're usually not the best highs it's somewhere in the middle a lot of times yeah like i said we are largely the cause and the cure of the grief that we are encountering experiencing we fabricate so many things but when you get yourself to a good place and you approach life very rationally and you ask yourself those really simple questions you'll realize that we we have a tendency to conjure up all these scenarios that never actually happen and so much so that like you said things that have never happened to us in our lives. So why now? And I read this book about fear, like when I was in the midst of like, I didn't change my life. And it was, she, the author was saying that there were, there's so many people pushing out vibes, uh, fearful vibes, putting, pushing out all this fearful energy. Why would you want to be just like them? When you could be the complete opposite, why would you contribute to something that is already so overly saturated? And I was like, huh, it was just, the, it's like the things that are obvious, but you need somebody else to tell you. When she said that to me, I was like, huh. And so now nothing really, nothing really scares me anymore. Like, because I approach things by asking myself, what's the worst that could happen? So when you, when you kind of, when you follow that type of routine, you realize that it's, it's actually nothing nearly as bad as you could ever think. And so when you start approaching things through a more positive lens, a lot of really good things continuously happen to you. It's not even as yes, yes. It's not even necessarily positive though. That's just like realistic. Yes, realistic. Re yes, exactly. <laughs> it's actually realistic. Yeah. Um, but I love that because people love to throw oversaturation out there. I'm not gonna do this because so I'm not gonna be a musician. Like, there's 50 million in the music industry. Is this and that and streaming and blah blah blah. Um, people use oversaturation for a reason to not do something and this is a perfect example of using oversaturation to not do something like yeah you should probably stop being so scary everybody else is scary you want to live your life like that <laughs> or i mean there's how many board games that are out there <laughs> exactly know? girl you think you're the next monopoly you're gonna be the black monopoly oh okay i guess like there's so, i mean yeah like a old board game but there's so many games out there maybe you should stay in school and work on your phd like it's just i i yeah there are there are plenty of games out there but I mean, you have Lyft, you have Uber, you have Johns Hopkins, and you have Children's Hospital. I mean, you have, there. everything is everywhere. There's, there's so many different ethnic restaurants. Like, there's, it's very easy to find Indian food in the city because there are many good Indian restaurants, and there are many that have been in existence since I've been here because everybody is finding their own way. So don't push people down. But again, that comes that comes back down to what we were talking about earlier, people projecting their insecurities. And yes. people do it in a variety of ways where yes. you, you're, you can be, if you if you are savvy, you could be totally on to, you don't, you don't miss it. It is very easy to identify and acknowledge when somebody is projecting their own insecurities. And so I look at where people are in their lives and mundane routines and and then I hear the things that they say about my work and I'm like, you are struggling internally. So I'm not even going to create enough space <laughs> for this to actually <laughs> penetrate because you have a lot of things that you need to be working on. But it's like, oh my gosh, you wanna you wanna you wanna run a board game? 
Oh, you're going to put it in stores? Well, no, I don't sell my game in stores. And this board game allows me to travel the country educating people. It's a tool. It's not just a game. And so I'm looking at it through an entirely different lens where other people are just looking at it, oh, just as another game, a bootleg monopoly or whatever, a monopoly with people. Well, hello, it pays the bills. You said, (laughs) ma'am, that's between you and God. I'm going to move over to this next person who's actually open. Ma'am. Pretty Mm -hmm. (laughs) I want to talk about speaking of speaking of factuality again some more the custom game pieces. Yeah. If you are listening to this episode, which I know you are, because there are trillions of downloads daily, let me go ahead and speak that into existence. Um, these game pieces are fire, like fuego, fuego, like they are gorgeous. Yes. Thank you. Um, and I also love, I read that you have a trans character in there. Come I through do. up to date. Come through practice. Yes. <laughs> intersectionality. Yes. Yes. So I have these paper characters and they're really cute. So I designed everything that you see for factuality from the money to the boards to the characters. I didn't know. I, I didn't even know I could draw. I was actually drawing and talking to an artist about what I want, wanted my characters to look like and I was sketching and I looked at these sketches I was like girl you could draw okay then so I had to let her know and it's interesting she wasn't too happy with me and I no longer feel bad about that because in a sense I consider myself an artist too and creative a creative process is a very interesting thing and I do consider myself visionary but sometimes what I'm intending to complete something else could kind of pop up into my mind that changes my own trajectory so that was the very beginning I didn't sign any contracts and I before she even made anything I had said to her oh my gosh I actually figured this out and so I ended up creating I mean and I like the fact that I own 100% of this like I own every single aspect of this it's all mine or as my friend Jason will say mines (laughs) and so it's all mine and um and so I'm playing with these paper characters. They get worn because I use the material so much. And I've just been for a long time trying to figure out how to get these to, or how to turn these into 3D and make it just that much more of a real experience. And finally found a company that was willing to give this a try and just, just totally brought these characters to life. And we're going back and forth over the last few details because Mason wasn't chocolatey enough. I'm like, you got to send him back. You got to make his lineup crisp. He's a black male. Or oh, one. Barbara said, yes. Hello, right? I was like, these things are really important. Like, you can't have Mason. When I get these, the first version of them, they are just going to make up. They're going to make hundreds of them for me after. So this first version has to be, like, crisp. I'm like, you got to redo Mason's hairline. And then I have a, um, a Muslim character, and she wears a hijab. And yes. I said... You need to make her hijab longer. I cannot see her neck. Send her back. And then so I'm, I'm just constantly going through this. Going Send through the her back. And so I hear a lot about the, the, the violence and, and the fatalities around black trans women. And so that was extraordinarily important to me. And also there, we have a family friend who's transitioning and I, and I love her and I just want her to feel uplifted and supported. And so I thought it would be really important to talk about the intersections of blackness, womanhood, and trans identity. It's very important to have those speak in concert and the people who play that character, they struggle, but they need to see what it is like when you are born into those types of mark. Marginalized aspects of identities and all of the repercussions that come from 
the three of them together, even when there are serious, serious repercussions for just being one of them, black or woman or trans. But what happens when you're all three? And so it was really important for me to tell that story. You better tell nuanced stories because that is our nuanced experience. Absolutely. Let me tell you, I don't know personally how hot your specific fire was. But when I tell you the finished product, ma'am, you came Mm. out with your coating. You came out like (laughs) you are (laughs) set. Like, oh, it is such an honor to be able to talk to you. I'm so glad. You were like, who's this stranger on the internet? Well, I guess I talked to her because it's like, and I want to say like, just looking at photos of you. So first of all, design. So shifting away from factuality, let's talk about the confessions of a DIY junkie and how y'all Miss Natalie got herself together. Okay. She's a fashionista. She has her smile. Her smile don't look like she been through nothing at all. She has her natural hair. Okay. Moisturized. Skin <laughs> popping. Um, on on your uh, website, Confessions of a DIY Junkie, you talk. Uh, you have a lot of before and after. Miss Natalie is a homeowner. Um, you talk about minimalism, and I saw you had an article with BlackMinimalist.net. Um, I have in big, bold letters, stylish in gold in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> You're a seamstress, you work with furniture, you call yourself a flexitarian, yes. um, you have a soundtrack to your creativity, uh, you do your own manicures. When I tell you you are a package deal, when I tell you how much time do you have in a day, ma'am? <laughs> because <laughs> You know, I, I miss that blog so much. And I, when I get the time, I just said it to someone, I think yesterday, I said, when I get the time... I definitely would love to pursue home decor and with a with a really a twist that I think is like so next level. I can't even I would tell you in private, but I couldn't tell your your listeners. But <laughs> I definitely want would love to get back into blogging and I I I like things to look a certain way, but I don't want it to reflect I don't want the look to be reflected in my bank account. And so I've just gotten really intentional about creating my own things because I can save a lot more. And in my house, my home that I I absolutely love, I have a finished basement, which doesn't have a lot of space for storage. So minimalism is very integral for me. Like I have to, I can't acquire a lot, but I had a friend, I have a friend, Simone, who told me years ago when I first got into minimalism, because I was actually admiring the way she and her twin sister were living and they shared this tiny apartment in Boston that had only what they needed. And that's how Simone and her sister operate, especially Simone who I'm closer with. And she said to me that we use 20% of our things, 80% of uh, 80% of the time. So 20% of our things, 80% of the time. So you think about what you gravitate towards in your wardrobe or the songs you listen to or the the types of things that you, that the appliances you use in your kitchen, like 20% of our things, 80% of the time. So I spent years trying to reconcile that number. I wanted to at least use 80% of my things, 80% of the time which meant that I had to get rid of a lot of things. So my home, almost every wall in my home is gray. All of my clothes, or I would say 
well over 80% of my clothing are neutral tones because I can get almost annual usage out of them. Yes. And so yes. we, we acquire so many things that we don't need, that we don't love. And I want to love everything around me. So that means you can't have a lot because we just consume, consume, consume. And you have to be really mindful of what you consume. And yes. uh, just to brag a little bit, I learned that from Bell Hooks, who was like my little buddy, actually, because she, she came to one of my talks and... and she came, she told me, she's like, I'm only coming to this. We, and we had just met, but we really clicked. And she said, I'm only coming to this talk for you. And then she came to my game and she played the trans character. And then she calls me and tells me, oh, I, I was talking to Laverne Cox about playing your trans character. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And so Belle, in the, the couple of days I got to spend with her in Arizona, and then and also our subsequent conversations, because... Belle and I have been having conversations since March of 2018. Oh, yeah. Our last conversation earlier this month, she was like, you need to come visit me. I'm like, okay, <laughs> done. So I'm going to, I'm hoping to get out to her uh, no later than the fall. But anyway, she was telling me to be really mindful of, of what I consume because that's a part of minimalism. Like I look at mo minimalism holistically. So I have to be mindful about what triggers me, if I'm watching a show on Netflix and I'm just like, I don't, I don't give it too many episodes to figure out if I want to watch. If it's not relating to me, if I can't get into it, I turn it off. You have to be really mindful about what we're subjecting ourselves to because time is so precious and time is so limited when you are focused on your goals. And so I'm just looking at minimalism from all these different angles, which turns into what you get to see on the site. And I'm hoping once I can get factuality running by itself, because of course that's a goal too, I most certainly want to die. Yeah, I'm working on that. I actually just completed my NDA, had my first signed NDA and sent out a packet of how to run the game that is so airtight, like it's being up, upheld in all the courts, girl. <laughs> so definitely <laughs> trying, trying to get some trainers on board and, and, and exploring some other bigger ways to get this out too. But I would love to spend some time with the, with the home decor and getting back into my blog. Yes. So I am fangirling so extra hard. I could barely let you talk. So sorry. <laughs> that was so unexpected. You surprised me because usually um, people share everything in their lives on on social media. So I'm able to like research easily. But ma'am, when I tell you uh, I happen to be in New York, she did a residency at the new school. Is it the new school? Yep, the new school. Yes. And it was just a series of talks and um, she would have one guest or a panel of guests just discussing whatever Belle wanted to discuss. And she yeah. came with her plaited hair and I would wait in line. And it was just so amazing to be in her presence. Like I know she's human and I know she uses lowercase letters for her name to not center herself so much, but like Oh, she is just <laughs> so fabulous. I know she's like, maybe not. Well, I don't know. But there was her criticism of Beyonce. And, you know, can't nobody say anything about Beyonce. Did you did you read about that? We, Belle and I spoke about that, actually. Girl, so like I know. Well, I've seen some of the newer generations is like, mm, Belle fell off. Like, she's not up to date on what's going on. And I didn't see as much from her. Not that she's particularly public anyway. She doesn't believe in digital from what she said. Um, yes. So, yes. 
Well, I'll I mean, talk I, to you about I, that later. <laughs> I mean, you know, what I, it's, it's, you just, what I can say about that is we have a tendency to cancel culture, cancel culture, which I, I don't really believe in, um, in the same right. regard, but we have, we have a tendency to cancel. We have a tendency to attack the source instead of listening to the source and Belle is definitely one of the most intelligent people that I know. She's she's absolutely absolutely brilliant, and her work attests to that. The way she lives attests to that. But you have to take time to 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 explore the intricacies of what is being said through the source. And I'm not certain that that was done in the most efficient way. I'm cert I am certain that that was not done, particularly because. Some of her language, I would think, is inaccessible to people who don't read a book a day like she does. Literally, a book a day. But she, she got, and actually, she could read faster than that because we went thrift shopping and she grabbed the book. She said, oh, I'll read this in a couple of hours. So she can get a couple of books done in a day, actually. And so, again, yeah, just that, her, just her mindset, the way she can, the way she consumes and how she's able to process so mm-hmm. quickly. I don't know if, if, if that was um, that was factored into to the equation. Mm-hmm, I'm mm-hmm. convinced that it wasn't. But no, it's At, not. As the Hook spokesperson, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs> That's so wonderful, man. And I miss like relationships with elders. Like I don't have a lot of old people in my life, so I have to borrow old people. But I love being around older people. Oh, me too. So yeah. I have. I have Belle, who I can, you know, I guess I could say Belle's on speed dial, which is cool to say. But then I have my next door neighbor, Miss Cheryl, who will not, she will not reveal her age. I believe she's <laughs> in her 60s. And it's just, it's, it's a, it's a friendship that we have. Like we hang out, we've gone places together. When I have parties, she will come. But then I also have, I also have old friends who are, one of my friends, we just went out for his birthday earlier this week or what day is it today's what, what day is it sunday i'm losing track this entrepreneurial life got, got me forgetting what day it is girl <laughs> and so <Monday>. last <laughs> it's monday today's monday yes today's, oh my gosh i really just had no idea so last week he went <laughs> and his birthday and daniel turns 57 so I, and i but i also am having a get together next week i'm inviting an old student anthony who's 21 so i i really do feel like it is so important to have relationships across the lifespan so i and i love having <laughs> Um, the perspective of, of older people and younger people as well, too. Yes, 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 yes. So let's talk travel now. So this game, Factuality, has enabled you to travel. I'm sure that you traveled before that. But what has your travel journey been like? So, yes, just take that and run. Uh, my travel journey... Travel has been actually really important all throughout my life. My mom is from Jamaica, and so I've always had this major, major fascination with with uh, cultural diversity. And my parents weren't big on flying, but they definitely packed my sister and I into that car, and we did all types of road trips and a few flights here and there, but all types of road trips, even a road trip into Canada. We went to Martha's Vineyard growing up, and... So we went to like an overnight camp. So my parents grew up really, really poor. I would probably say in poverty. And they, and so they just were really focused on 
making sure we went to good schools, making sure that we were afforded opportunities. They prioritized giving us opportunities that were never an option for them. And so we, so travel was always something that was important to me. And so I remember going, after going on a couple of like beach vacations with friends that I was ready for something bigger. But then, you know, you ever see those memes about planning a trip with your black friends? <laughs> By the time you go on this trip, you're down to like one or two people. It was or one of those. Nine. And oh, you're like, uh, should I take this solo trip? Because uh... <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely what happened. And that's why I ended up going on a solo trip to Europe. I went into, I went to, actually I went to a couple of places. I went to, I went into London. I went to Paris, I went to Barcelona by myself. And I think I was about 24 or 25. And I think maybe 25. And I was like, I need to make this a permanent staple. I need to figure it out. And so since then, I've been to many other countries and some many times just getting on a flight and meeting friends there and and but navigating my whole entire way by myself into different countries to connect with people to connect with good friends. And so I think that I love I love having the access to travel, but then I was also thinking about, well, how can I make this a part of what I do? And thinking back to when I was like back in 2008, when I was like, I want to travel and do diversity work and never, never losing sight of that and even trying to find jobs that would have some diversity and travel component. Like it was always something that I, I, I didn't realize I was actively working towards, but it, mm. it was something that never, never left the conscious, never, ever. And so that's exactly what I, what I get to do. And so I try to build an extra, like an extra day or two when I travel, I always want to go to a black museum. I always want to see how black people were treated regionally. And oh, when I was in oh. Seattle for a training, I went to a black history museum and I saw that there were these black settlers, these black pioneers who had fled California because the racism, we think of California being this so super open. Yeah. and open, right? But I'm reading about these black pioneers who had to, who fled California because the racism was so bad and settled in C- into Seattle, which has a really awful history around their own redlining. So I'm not sure how much better it was there. But I saw that these, these pioneers were settling in the 1700s, but we all know when we were allegedly emancipated. So it was very interesting to me to see regionally what was happening for with black people. So I always wanna to go to a black museum and I always wanna to go to some black restaurant. And as a black business owner, I'm understanding how important it is to love on those types of entities. So I get to travel, but then I also get to put things into practice that are really important to me through this life I created that involves travel around my, my form of activism. Yes. Yes. Did your mom and dad kind of understand or not really understand your desire to travel? <laughs> I think my mom was, my mom is just, was, has, my mom is a worrier. And that's, that's <laughs> one of the things I found myself becoming and, you know, feeling fearful and worrying. I'm like, ah, I, I cannot become, become this person. <laughs> and um, I love my mom. <laughs> but so. You said that because, you know, she's going to listen. So. I want, hey, I want, I want her to listen. <laughs> I want her to listen. I hope this also serves as an opportunity to talk to her. And so, um, I think that my mom, I, I loved, I loved spending time alone 
and that's when I get some really good work done. But I enjoy my own company and I enjoyed who I was becoming and eventually. And so I love spending time alone, but I think that it always concerned her about me spending time alone or me wanting to hop on a flight to go here and there. I think it worried her and nothing bad has ever happened. Mm-hmm. And so instead of spending all that time worrying, what happens if you just apply yourself? What happens if you just get yourself out there? You realize that, again, that we're fabricating or conjuring up a lot of these, all these what-ifs, you know, manifest into yes. stagnation. It, it makes us stagnant. We become complacent instead of just pushing ourselves. And you realize that there actually is no true capacity that you can just continue to grow and evolve. And so I think that she sees that my parents both get to see it through the work that I'm doing, but I don't know, I don't know as many, I guess you can say, quote unquote, risk takers. I don't really consider this taking risk. I just feel like I'm living freely. Yes. Oh my gosh. So when you said that, I think that's going to become a segment of the show now. So I want to give you space messages to mom. You could use her name or not. But like, mm-hmm. what do you want your mom to hear? Hmm. I, I think not just for my mom, but I think that for, for other listeners too, I think I've kind of been toying with this idea of a comfort zone and it just kind of came to this conclusion that it's not really a comfort zone. It's a discomfort zone. And we kind of fester in the confines of this discomfort because we're so afraid to push through because what most people don't realize that on the other side of the, of the discomfort is the comfort. So everything that I, I was pushing through a lot of discomfort and now I live a extraordinarily comfortable life because I challenge myself. I go below the surface and I think you, you are going to find things that you don't like, but once you get there and you can own those realities, when you are able to push through, that's when the true living begins. That's when I don't really believe in this whole living your best life because I feel like that puts like a cap. Like people would be like in Miami beach, living my best life. I'm like, no girl, you could do better than that. <laughs> might be a really good life right then. But, but don't, but don't shortchange yourself. That is not your best. I mean, I love the song and I don't need Lil Duval coming for me, but I think, cause I think it's a fun song, but I think that the way people approach it, they're limiting themselves. And I know I can do better than how I'm doing right now. That's a fact because I'm always outpacing myself. I benchmark solely against myself on an annual basis. Every year May rolls around, I approach my birthday, I start benchmarking. Um, I've pushed through a lot of uncomfortable, what felt like barriers. And now like life is really good, but it's not my best. I'm still, I, like best is, best is infinite. I can't even tell you, I can't even see where best is, but I'm always climbing towards that. And so just for my mom and for others, just to, just to just to try being free and hold yourself accountable even when it doesn't feel comfortable and 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 seek what else is out there get yourself out of that bubble try something new make a habit out of trying something new make a habit out of shifting how you talk to yourself out of just make a habit out of 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 living abundantly like what what does that look like but just always try to push yourself because when you don't get that's not living that's that's existing but when you start pushing yourself that's when the life truly begins and it is so joyous and 
it's it, that doesn't even that's an under a tremendous understatement. But the true your the the most joyful times of your life are on the other side. It's always on the other side of that discomfort that you're festering in. Ooh, fester. <laughs> Ew. <laughs> it, it, it's you're festering. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, rolling around in it like a pig in, in mud. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's dirty. It's gross. <laughs> um, So I'm going to do a little throwback, a little Duval, cute and everything. But clearly you're a no limit soldier. Uh, <laughs> there's no limit to what Natalie could do. So whatever ceiling y'all trying to put on her, she don't even recognize it's above her. I would say at work, I love that it's above her. I would say at work, I was like, they are trying to, was it dim my light, but neglected to to see that I was actually solar powered. And so they're doing all these things, but all I need is like a little access to light and I'm still beaming. And they were trying to dim that light, but I had, but they didn't realize where the source was. And yeah, just always just trying to to shine bright and there are no limits. Like you tell me I can't do something, I approach it rationally. Like if you tell me I can't do something, if I if I can rationally agree that I can't, I, there's there's no need to try to 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 dis, to disprove this. But I am always, you know, you tell me I can't do something, I'm gonna look at it through a rational lens and I'm gonna go for it and I will get it because that's how it always works. Don't play yourself. <laughs> Don't doubt yourself either. Or play yourself and don't try to play me. However, you want to do it. Me and her, too. Like, do, do, just, just, just save yourself from this because I will get this done. <laughs> Have you met me? Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Man, that is so fire. So, like, okay, um, talking about travel, like you said, you haven't encountered like any problems traveling. So, uh, being a black woman with your natural hair with your brown skin, that, how have you been received in the places where you've traveled? I mean, goodness, traveling to, let's, let's talk about something real basic, traveling to work. I remember that I had gotten my hair cut, so my hair was straight, and my coworker says to me, oh, your hair's out today, baby girl, my hair is always out, <laughs> just because it's straight Ooh. doesn't mean it's not out, and so I was like, hmm, okay. Cool observation. Thanks. And I had already heard things about racism with this person. So when they said that to me, I just looked at them in a whole different type of way. So there's that. But traveling abroad and being black, I mean, traveling domestically and being black, yes. it comes, it's, 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 it's hard. So since I said uh, internationally, I'll do that first. I remember we were in South Africa, minding our whole entire business. Me, Sanji, her sister Mo, her mama Makita. And there were white tourists with the cameras out, just sneaking pictures, taking pictures. It was like never ending. So invasive that the wait staff had to approach these people and tell them to put their cameras away. And so just like no coof, like <laughs> you are so limited in your interactions with diverse people or diversity, seeing black people that you are turning this into a spectacle and you are, you are taking out your camera and invading our time while we're trying to explore the most Southern part of, of, the, of, 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 of South Africa or Africa. And there are people with their cameras in our faces or just being stopped, people asking for pictures who don't look like us just solely because we're black. That happens a lot. Or with the same group of people, we actually went into, we went into Sweden to go visit some friends. 
and this white male approaches me and he says, do you want to know what my favorite song is? And I was like, nah, I don't. I really don't. He knows my N-word, my N-word, my N-word. That song, my, my, and he says that to me. And I was like, you need to get the, you know, I, so I had a couple of words, but I asked him, don't sing this to me. And then he goes behind us uh-huh. and he first, he's, first he drops the N word three times and then he goes behind us and he gets it maybe on Spotify or something. I don't know. And he starts playing the song while he's just a few feet behind us. Like, I felt like that was harassment. Like, what are you doing? So I feel sometimes when I travel abroad, I feel so black in a way that does not feel good. And, and it's, it's in universally, like universally black people have been treated so poorly, like universally. And it's the, and it's the wildest thing. And when you think about the inflictors and what has in, and, 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 the repercussions that solely coincide with blackness. It just doesn't add up. But when you think about a hater in the most simplest of, of terms and forms, like somebody is hating on you shining, like it's just, it's just, and you break it down, make it super, super simple. And you think about this collective of universal haters towards black people and, and then understanding the, the ramifications it has on black people, but then seeing how, we're still able to soar. It's 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 such a beautiful thing to be black when you when you consider all of the atrocities, all the horrific things, all of the intentional policies to keep black people down, but yes. still seeing this prevail. It's a beautiful thing. But you know, it's 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 hard to come full circle with that in the midst of somebody saying the N-word in your presence deliberately. Or somebody, you, you notice that you're being treated differently because your skin is too brown. It's like things like that. It's, it's. I don't know. I, I, I never want to get used to that. And I, and I always hope I have it within me to continuously combat that. <sighs> At this point, like, I just want to ask you, like, what are the bad things about you? Because I'm just a little bit too in love with this polished person, not polished, but this evolved person that you're presenting. And I don't know if I'm just being a hater and negative, but I was just, that's not a real question. I'm just playing with you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I mean, I admittedly, like I can, I can say I've come a long way. I definitely, yeah, I, I think I've largely been a kind person, but I haven't always been the kindest. But again, that's just owning things like if you can own where you are if you have if you can be self-aware and strong enough to just own your limitations you can only go up from there it's like somebody saying you did this to me and it's something that you actually didn't and then you deny it. and i didn't do that but then you rephrase it like or you you go back to that you did this to me and you're like yeah i did and i'm sorry oh <laughs> it's like people don't expect right, you right. to just be accountable so when you own things like like again that that's when you grow and so i'm I'm in a much better, much, much better. I think I've always been a good person, but I've, I've become a great person. So you are fully prepared in case somebody like digs through your past and like brings up anything that's out of taste. <laughs> so be like, I'm, oh, here's my iOS apology note, my press release, <laughs> my iOS notes. And app. I, I don't even <laughs> think that there's anything truly that bad, but I really do think it's important just yes. to 
respect the fact that evolution is a part of life. And so if you had any type of encounter with me, especially prior to the last several years, that was a very different Natalie. And I realized that I was, I had a really good conversation with my sister, uh, late, uh, late last year, I mean, December really. And I was just talking to her about realizing that I'm not, I'm good at, I know that I've evolved and I want people to, to recognize that, but am I also good at recognizing the ability for other people to evolve? And I realized that I was limited there, that I was holding people back in this time when I had this encounter and not allowing them to have their own patterns or own process for growth and reconciliation and evolution. And I've gotten, so that's, I'm so, I'm a work in progress, but I'm realizing that I was limited there and now I'm approaching more people and even relationships that I had to release because they weren't good for me under this lens of perhaps they have evolved as well. Yes. Yes. Giving people people. to grow too. Like, again, your compassion and empathy out of this world. Wonderful job. Wonderful job. (laughs) So, Miss Natalie, um, you talk about music being very important to you. Is there a song lyric or a poem that speaks to you these days? Yes, there are... Too. And so I get a lot of questions about how I was able to get my business started and what allowed it to be successful. And I ask people a really simple question. How do you feel about you? Are you happy? And it turns into, well, I want to work on this. I want to do that. Okay. Okay. So I hear all those things. And so it makes me think of Lauren Hill. How are you going to win if you ain't right within? That's something that really sticks with me because in order for you to be successful with any of your pursuits, you have to be good to you. You have to make sure that you are doing this internal inventory, that your mental health is in line, that all like that you have your like you have really good routines and good practices. Like you have to be good if you want anything to reflect you to be as good. It starts there. And so that's one that really speaks to me. And Rihanna J and Esta have this song called 23. Came out a couple of years ago. And I'll tell you, before I go to work in the morning, even on my commutes to work, I'll play that song. Like that whole song speaks to me, but she talks about how she just wants it all when she's finished and she got to go get it. And she just, she's just, uh, she talks about basically how she is there to, 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 to win and to claim all these things. And that was literally the solitary song on the soundtrack to my entrepreneurship. Like I was, I listened to that song every time I, I crush something or I outpace myself or I, I achieve a major milestone. I put that song on. In fact, I'm gonna listen to it today because (laughs) you know, like she's, it's just, I'm just trying, I can't like now that I'm talking to you about it, I can't even think I know every word in that song, but it's just such a beautiful song. That's like, just really speaks to me about like, I'm about to this up. <laughs> yes. So talk about your self self care practices a bit. Um, I saw you post about yoga. Is yoga a, a part of your self care? It's, it's not, I have done yoga. I would like to try it again, but <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, it's something that didn't stick, but I, um, I would like to try it again. And I am really into, I take time to, to meditate. I take time to express gratitude for the crappiest, crappiest things. I am like, I'm, I'm so grateful to the boss that wouldn't fire the coworker that 
that sparked that who's who's that that encounter with the encounter that led me to feeling so inspired to create factuality. I'm so grateful to the human resources person that just kept digging. I'm so grateful to the racist boss that I had. I'm so grateful to the administration for not reconciling. So I am always giving genuine thanks for everything. And I think that's beautiful when you can give thanks for some of the most horrific things you encountered, you are truly on your way. So that's a major part of it as well too. I mean, I have so many (laughs) self-care practices Therapy is one of them, and I'm so happy to share that after several years of seeing good therapists, that now I go to therapy probably once a quarter, and largely it's just to check in or ask these unresolved questions about <laughs> generational differences. But I, I don't, I don't, I don't have to go to. I, I go because I want to see my therapist, not because I feel like I truly need it because I have enough tools to get myself through if I'm feeling a little bit of anxiety or once in a while if I feel a little depressed, I can work myself out of that. So. Um, another self-care practice, which I don't think is common, I don't, I don't think, is I made an active decision to stop gossiping. And I also do not allow my friends to gossip to me about others. Mm-hmm. If you feel some type of way about what somebody's doing, help them. Talk to them. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't talk to me about something that happened to you that was truly effed up. You, we can talk about that. But don't call me to talk to me about anybody. Help help them because that's a waste of time. So self-care is also limiting how we waste our time. And again, it gets back to what we're consuming. And so I think of worrying. So I try not to, I really good at not worrying. I'm not a really fearful person in the gossiping and the comments section. That's all self-care too. Stay out of those comments. You can get (laughs) so hurt. So those are a part of it too. And I'm good at saying no. I'm good at saying no. I don't care if I put money down on something. If it doesn't feel right to me and it's non-refundable, you can keep that money because I, I'd rather say no and stay at home or do something that is worth that I feel is worth my time. I I I'm routinely engaging in activities that require me to be present. And so I do there's a lot of behind the scenes scene things I do for factuality. Like I have to sit and count out money and prepare banks and prepare small allotments of money for all my characters. You know how long it takes to do it for a hundred people, 200 people, but it allows me to be really present and being present disrupts anxiety, disrupts depression. Absolutely. I love lavender. I will put probably like, I probably, I just shake it over my pillow. I put it on my temples and I probably shake about 20 (laughs) minutes on my pillow and I feel myself melting. And what I will say lastly is baths. And I think that you know, you see the memes, but I do think a lot of people think self-care is taking a bath. Like you, that's to be the last on your list. <laughs> Don't even think about taking a bath if you are going into that bath with all these unresolved things that trigger your anxiety. Yeah. Bath it's is not, not letting it wash off of you and float down that drain either. It's not, it's not, it's going to stay. You're going to have to wipe it out the tub. You're going to see the remnants of it when you get out. And so, you know, I need people, it's like, so, it definitely, uh, it's definitely part of my routine, but I feel like I've earned the bubble baths. Oh, I love baths. I'm an Asia girl, and ain't a bathtub inside nowhere, baby. It's just showers. Oh, no. just... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but I got to spend some time in London, and when I tell you, I think that's where the bath originated. Honey. Oh, yeah. Right. Hello? Yeah, and it's just oh. like a regular apartment. <laughs> Uh, we, I grew up when, well, when I, for a little a limited time, we had a clawfoot tub. I'm actually 
uh, planning to get a really nice tub. Again, I, I earned those baths, and so I'm planning, I'm planning on getting a really nice tub soon because that's definitely part of my routine. So it sounds like uh, your self-care practices also help to keep you grounded. Is that fair to say? Or is there something in particular that keeps you grounded? Self-care definitely keeps me grounded. And the self-care was, I, in, in all honesty, I've, I've encountered, I've experienced suicidal ideation. And yes. for those who listen, who, I mean, that's something that I don't, I, I've never shared in, in like on a public platform. I don't believe, but I have shared it with a couple of people. So if my mom, my dad listens, this is new, but I have, I have had suicidal ideation where I was terrified of driving because I felt like I would just be reckless and there you go. And so that was following after I lost everything. I had a friend, I think I mentioned the friend who lied about the finances of his business and I, I tanked and I, I mean, I lost my sense of self. Uh, to an extent, my sanity, my home, my money, and and I, I lost all those things. So I, so I know that it is possible to have a great, a lot of great things, and I also know it's possible to lose it all. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. alone, and and I, but more than anything, seeing the seeing the the degradation of my mental health, that is just someplace I hope to never ever be again. And that really keeps me grounded. Just being healthy, like. And and not not having my health and having it what it and what feels like it it's uh, fully restored now that is it that is so essential to me and that's what keeps me grounded and then I think all of my routines all of those practices support me having optimal mental health. Yes. Wow, that's really gorgeous. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because I'm sure there are a lot of us. <laughs> a lot of us. We, mm-hmm. we black women talk more about seeking uh, therapy, uh, seeking tools of healing. And I don't know that we have started talking about the suicide, how depressed we are, how anxious we've been. Um, because we tend to be funny. We tend to laugh our way out of things. We're storytellers by nature, I believe. And so yes. that's that's what we tend towards. Because like I don't know that anyone sympathizes or empathizes with a a black woman's experience necessarily. And so like, you don't cry because you're just like, well, who's gonna listen to my tears? Like (laughs) as a black woman, like nobody's gonna listen to me crying. So. Absolutely. And you know, and speaking of that, I remember being quiet for the greater portion of those two years at that job because I was so afraid of retaliation, which I definitely encountered. I was so afraid of disrupting my job security if I was honest. And I would watch my white counterparts be so honest about their experiences that largely had nothing to do with race. And that was, it was welcome. And I would be terrified to say the R word because at my job saying that there is racism implies that somebody is racist and nobody wants to be racist. And then also people don't have a good understanding of racism. It's not those overt things. There's it's, it's a wide array that's captured under racism. And so never really feeling like I had a space to, to be authentic, you know, so you have the imposter syndrome and the code switching and it's exhausting and there's no space to, to share just how exhausting and traumatizing it is to have to, not be able to be yourself every day. It's oppression. It is. You are. 
stuffing yourself inside yourself and you don't even have anybody to talk to about it usually that's going to understand yeah absolutely so miss natalie let me ask you um so your style of traveling so you you are a homeowner um and you obviously travel for business uh, so you don't normally spend any right now at this stage in your business, you don't normally spend a lot of time outside of the States or even on the road while you're facilitating your game. Is that, that is That is correct. So okay. right now it's, it's largely domestic and definitely trying to create opportunities to go abroad with this work and, I have applied to a couple of conferences. I've got gotten rejected to all of those conferences. And I saved those letters. A little side note, like I go on a lot of tangents. But do you remember that when Beyonce showed that video when she was in that girls group and they were like the first runner up, they didn't win. And then she like, and then segues into her video and like she's Beyonce now. And it's like, I save all those rejection letters. They make me think of Beyonce. I love Beyonce. They make me feel like Beyonce. Okay. Like, are you going to reject me? But you're going to hire me right there. <laughs> so um no traction no traction abroad just yet but it's definitely an an aspiration i have some plans of um i'm, I'm just i'm ready i'm ready for that acceptance letter i'm ready for that that we want you note so i can so i can uh use all this data i've been collecting to create versions of factuality that could address international populations yes to make the conversation um, mm -hmm. right. More than just about America. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Wow. So that's a lot of research, I'm sure, to try and understand from other countries' perspectives what it has been like for Black people in those countries. Absolutely. And so, yeah. you know, I get this up and running and then I can just, you know, create my own sabbatical and go to London hey. The race relations back to South Africa, go to Cape Town. You know, like there are things like I have some data, but I need to I need to go there for a period of time and get to yeah. learn it. Definitely, definitely on my mind. So that sounds exactly like your um, how you explore when you do travel. You said you go to the museums, you go try to eat at a black rest, a black owned restaurant. Um, but in the future, oh, well, also right now, like research is a part of your experience when you travel, you want to learn about the people there and how they experience things uh, mm -hmm. historically in that specific place. Because even in America, the experience has been diverse. Yes. Mm -hmm. So I remember being in, in, in South Carolina, Charleston, and I'm looking around and I was like, oh, this just feels so Girl, slavey, right? I was there and I was like, this is the type of place that will sell shackles as a keychain. Oh, absolutely. And so I went to the slave mart. I went to, I went to it and just turning, you know, it's like, it's just the architecture just screams. Yeah. Your, your people were sold up and down these streets because and, it just, mm -hmm. sorry. Go, no, go ahead. sorry, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> and I, and I was going to say the architecture screams built by black people. Oh, absolutely. And the same thing happened when I went to UVA and I am in that courtyard and I'm just looking around. I'm like, these look like like slave quarters or uh, it's, it's just, Oh, like that type of architecture is just, mm -hmm. it's, it's just so off putting, but mm -hmm. I still want to go to those places. I want to, I want to be in those, those spaces where people that look like me were sold for a couple hundred dollars. That's, that was the value on 
three fifths of a life, right? A couple hundred dollars. Like I need to go into those spaces because I think that's part of the work. Wow. That is such an honor as well to be able to try to understand the story of the people that were there. Um, I saw something today. uh, I forget the name of it, but the New York Times was doing uh, obituaries for quote unquote remarkable black people. First of all, all of us are remarkable. (laughs) I saw that. (laughs) Okay. I I might've seen it while I was studying up for you. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure. If you shared it, then that's probably where I saw it. But um, that was very interesting to me. Like, yeah, it's more than just Sojourner Truth and Harriet Tubman and you know, the black dudes that were doing all Grover and all them, (laughs) that were doing all all the fantastic things. So that that is wonderful to be able to have that local flavor. I love I love that sense of traveling, traveling with a purpose like that and not just like going to the tourist spots. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but I love the your diverse way of traveling. (laughs) Education and learning is is truly at the core every place I go like that's I. I just always want to find a museum. I always want to spend some time researching. And like so much of the museums are similar because you have the mid-Atlantic slave trade. So that's the same in all these museums. But then there's these little regional tidbits that never make it to history books for obvious reasons. So I have to be intentional about receiving that type of education. So this is the portion of the show, of the show, where... um, I would love for you to tell our listeners how they can support your work. Sure. So you could find me on factualitythegame.com. That's the website. The facts portion is a blog that details all the places I've traveled around this country. And I think I'm up to 22 states and D.C., so about 23 places around the country. Factuality the Game on Instagram, Factuality Game on Twitter, and that is spelled F A C. T-U-A-L-I-T-Y. Okay, so I have factualitythegame.com and your Instagram and your Twitter are also Factuality of the Game. Factuality of the Game for Instagram and Factuality Game on Twitter. There's not enough characters allowed <laughs> for Factuality of oh. the Game on Twitter. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for taking two hours out of your life. <laughs> <laughs> It has been like, oh, such a blessing. So wonderful. So uplifting to hear all the things you've had to share, your unique perspective, your specific relationship with entrepreneurship and travel. Um, So thank you for bearing so much uh, with us. And I hope your parents enjoy the episode. (laughs) Thank you. I do, too. And I feel like they will. But thank you for for allowing me to, to have the space to, to share some of the more intimate uh, portions of this journey. And, and, and hopefully it's encouraging other listeners out there just to put themselves first and, and dive into what sets their souls ablaze because that's what it's really all about, that type of caliber and quality of life and living. Because clearly you are lit and you are here to light some other folks up. So... <laughs> that's so much love that's that's beautiful thank you so much yes thank you well enjoy your day natalie you as well thank you so much for having me absolutely i'll talk to you soon all right take care all right bye-bye
Barum, ah, um, barum. Mm.